Thanks for joining us today on Uptime Logistics, powered by CAP Logistics. And I am your host, Doug Draper, with the Denver Transportation Club. We have a phenomenal guest today. He is Pete Mento with Crow LLP. So Pete, thanks for joining us today. Entirely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great. And I appreciate it. I know you're in New York City today, getting things wrapped up from the week. So thanks for joining. Um, my pleasure. Yeah, we like to learn a little bit about our guests. So before we jump into our topic, um, which is really going to be focused around uh, uptime logistics and the ins, the outs, the do's and the don'ts as it relates to import uh, supply chain, kind of what's going on in the world right now, the craziness and how things changed uh, almost daily with managing your supply chain as it relates to imports. So that's kind of our topic and you are certainly the expert. So uh, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself so our audience uh, knows more about you. Sure, uh, I have a pretty bizarre back background. I, um, wow, how far back should I go? I was uh, <laughs> born in West Texas. I, I grew up in Texas. My family moved me to New Hampshire when I was a teenager. And uh, because I had no other outlet, I screwed up all my college applications. I ended up going to a Merchant Marine Academy, went to Maine Maritime Academy, where I, uh, I took all the proper academic courses to be a ship officer. So I was supposed to go to sea um, and be a deck officer, but it became evident to anybody who was paying attention that I was god awful at it. <laughs> yeah. so, I stopped going to sea and um, decided to pursue a career as a full-time stand-up comedian. And uh, I did that for quite some time. Um, it's pretty good. I thought I was pretty good. Yeah. I still think I'm pretty funny. But uh, unfortunately, um, I, I kind of got sick of living in Chevy Astro vans and um, days ends and uh, beating people up to get paid. Yeah. So I, uh, I stopped working on the road and went to graduate school at Harvard University and studied trade theory. And along the way, got some amazing jobs in the forwarding industry where I found out that there wasn't a lot of people paying attention to trade compliance from the perspective of duty minimization, particularly not globally. So I kind of made that my thing. And um, many people who are listening to this who know me, know me from my time at Expeditors Trade One. I ran the organization for almost eight years. Uh, left there to go to C.H. Robinson. Very fortunate to have worked for that great organization for a while. I was a partner with Ryan, um, where I ran there. I uh, had a lot of jobs. And uh, was recently at Crane. Great job, great people. And uh, for the past three months, I've been here at Crow. With the trade war that came about, um, got a pretty weird set of skills, and so do the guys that work with me. And there's never been people paying more in duties and taxes regarding international trade. So. We were in very, very high demand in the uh, the tax phase. Have us come back, get the band back together, yeah. help people avoid paying those taxes. That's great. That's terrific. So uh, before we jump in, your your uh, backstory is pretty interesting. So what's the best club that you performed at uh, or performed in during your uh, comedic career? I'm super proud of the fact that I got to uh, play at the um, – Comedy Connection in Boston. That was a really big deal to me, being a Boston guy. Um, and then I did play at Dangerfields in New York, which was also a really big deal to me. Nice. So um, played a lot of colleges and did a lot of that stuff. Bombed a lot uh, <laughs> on stage and had people not think I was funny. And what's hysterical is now that I, I when I do comedy now, uh, I'm not doing it to pay my rent. Mm. So I, I have so much more to say and uh, it's generally a lot funnier than when I was in my 20s, but yeah, that's, that's 
that dream is dead, my friend. Yeah. I'm just a, a balding, middle-aged, pear-shaped economist now talking about well, it takes one to know one. If you, uh, <laughs> since we're, we're we're both challenged in the in the follicle situation. So uh, anyway, we always like to talk about uptime in, in in buckets. It's easy to kind of grasp. There's you know it's such a large topic and it can really you know be intimidating. So um, we're going to talk about it in, in different buckets. And obviously, we need to start at the beginning. Um, so this is kind of an open-ended question, but maybe you could talk about what's going on with the tariff situation and, and kind of the, the cool term that's used by uh, the media is the trade war. So I know that there's been a lot of iterations and it seems like, as I mentioned before, things change almost on a daily basis. But uh, for our audience, just a quick overview, like where do things stand and what's going on um, right now? Well, today's November the 1st and, and we're all expecting some sort of a, uh, of, of some kind of a, of a, of a of announcement anytime now from the White House. We don't know what it is, but we believe that they're going to announce a date for a signing on that phase one deal. What, what everyone has to understand is that this is about ideas, right? And I keep talking about that. We're, America is very concerned about the, the theft of American ideas. We're also very concerned with um, this new innovation economy that we created in America. Um, China, for their own part, has, has really come into their own anybody who's been to china in the 1970s and 80s remembers what it was like it was not this beautiful industrialized city like it is now that could really compete with any beautiful gleaming industrial city in europe or, or the west it's shanghai's beautiful you know china's beautiful um so they're they're however failing in the innovation economy creating their own ideas i like to always ask people name me your your favorite chinese brand name company you know and they always say apple or Nike, and I say, no, those are, those are American companies. Right. So, um, but what's, what's happening now with this trade war is we appear to have a, a partial agreement on this phase one, where the U.S. is going to be selling significant portions of agriculture to China, about $50 billion worth. Um, there's some sort of a regulatory hurdle that's been overcome in China that will allow them to um, allow us to apparently take people to court over IP. I don't know how much we, we trust in that. Mm -hmm. um, and the steps to stop the joint venture program, which is how a lot of that technology is being stolen, appears to be uh, underway. There's also a, uh, a movement to lessen sanctions against certain technology companies in China, and also to allow certain American financial instruments like credit cards and financial companies to work inside of China. This is a big deal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's a pretty big deal that that we've gotten this far. The problem is um, it may be all we get. So when I sit around with my team of weaponized nerds and we, you know, between talking about Sudoku and Dungeons and Dragons and uh, we get back to work, we, we talk about whether or not this is all we're gonna see out of Shanghai and DC. If this is as far as it's gonna get and if this will be a victory enough, and it simply won't be. Uh, we're very concerned that this will be, um, you know, we'll put the flag on the ground and say, good enough. Mm -hmm. This isn't good enough. We, we need a lot more out of this, given all the suffering that American imports have done, and Chinese companies, for that matter. You know, um, where, where this supply chain starts has gone through a lot of pain. Right. Do you see, um, are we at the beginning of it, the end of it, the middle of it? You know, I mean, because we've been hearing about um, all the different uh, uh, tariff that have been imposed, and it was in phase one and phase two, and and yeah. this is uh, these rounds are coming out at this specific time. I mean, are we kind of at the point where things are going to get resolved, or is this still going to be 
months and years down the road where you and I could be meeting six months from now and have kind of the same discussion. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I get paid by the hour, so if this takes years to then this be excellent. Then we're good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I sincerely believe that we're probably in the middle. Mm -hmm. We're in the middle, and like any negotiation, that first tranche, believe it or not, is the easiest. You know, I, uh, I've struggled with my weight my entire life, and it's really easy to drop 15, 20% of your weight. It's, it's getting beyond that that's hard. And mm -hmm. this, this sharpening the knife and really cutting away at the bone and getting the hard part, it's not going to be easy. There's a lot of pride happening in China. You know, um, they're, they're changing the street names now. They're, they're taking English off and replacing them with Chinese and saying, this is China. You should really learn our language. You know, there's a rising of national pride over who they are and a return to this idea that people should be buying Chinese products. Think about it, right? It's a lot like here. So um, I believe that there could be some pushback. Really what it's going to come down to is it's an economic question. Who believes first? Who's going to get hit with that recession first? Who's going to be the one that says, I'm going to pull back on this and, 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 and possibly blink so that I don't have to worry about being the one that gets, uh, that gets caught really bad at this? Mm. I, like, I like that terminology, who, who blinks first? So I know a lot of the discussion has been on um, – the U.S. and China, and who's going to blink first between those two countries. But there's lots of other uh, tariffs that have been implemented from different parts of, yes. of the world as well that sometimes get lost in the discussion because it's not as sexy as China. And they're, <laughs> they're, they're taking, you know, uh, our, our, uh, our intel and things of that nature. So let's take a step yeah. back and say, what's the rest of the world thinking of all of this? And, uh, well, I'm going to ask you two questions. Number one, um, what other sanctions that would be of significance that are going on outside of China? Forget China doesn't even exist. What else is going on in the world with sanctions? And then secondly, what does the world in general think about all of this posturing and, and the tariff negotiations? So those two questions you know, for you. I first want to thank you for using the word sexy and tariff <laughs> in the same sentence. You, you don't even know how much that makes me happy. Yeah, my, well, my cold, know, dark heart. I do my part. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. Um, so what's the rest of the world, what's happening in the rest of the world, and what's the rest of the world think, taking China out of it? You know, we've kicked off a trade war with Europe, which no one is talking about. Yeah. No no one's even, go ahead, man, I, I dare you to turn on the news tonight and see if anybody's chatting about it. And I do apologize for all the horn honking, but I am in midtown Manhattan on a Friday, and everyone's trying to get out of this city but me, so um, <laughs> you can imagine the kind of, the, t the type of, of just misery that's happening on the yeah, no problem. Uh, the, um, the the reality is this trade war with Europe is a really big deal. So it really all comes down from a belief that America had in the early 90s that the European Union was giving um, assistance, financial assistance, to uh, Airbus that was not fair. We were, they were giving them um, subsidies that were not fair. Turns out that the World Trade Organization agreed with us. And they not only agreed with us, they said back in the late 90s, if you guys want to go ahead and, and you know, smack them with a shovel of wisdom for this, go right ahead. Mm -hmm. But we, at the time, in the 90s, we didn't want to do that. And then when 9-11 when happened, President Bush certainly wasn't going to do that because he had, he had a desire to keep this coalition of people working together to try to deal with what was a real threat with terrorism. And then President Obama, of course, was not really somebody to go poking people with a sharp stick. But now we have an executive who has absolutely no problems going ahead and stirring things up, um, particularly because 
with Europe, he would like to re-engage with something called the, the TTIP, you know, the Transatlantic Free Trade Agreement. Mm -hmm. But he wants to do it on our terms. He feels that the last thing that we had nearly agreed upon didn't nearly have enough in the U.S.'s interest. So he wants to get that all stirred up again, and this is a way of doing that. Now, Europe is saying that for our part, that we gave subsidies to Boeing that weren't fair. And, you know, spoiler alert, we probably are going to end up being <laughs> in a situation where we did, um, and the World Trade Organization is going to give Europe the right to do that. But it's going to take a while to get there. And um, this could be another prolonged trade war. And what's really hysterical, not hysterical, what's interesting about this one is sooner or later, someone's going to say, I'm going after automotive, either us or Europe. When, they, when that happens, whoa, 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 everybody, you know, it's like, a, it's like a, it's like when a fight's about to happen, it's like, yeah, everybody just calm down, right? <laughs> yeah. No reason for everyone to start throwing chairs and bottles. It's all just relax. Uh, and it's, it's very similar in that vein. So I think you're going to see this be prolonged, but everyone knows what the third rail is. Nobody wants it to happen. Hmm. You have at the same time, America and India going at it because India continues to buy most of its energy from Iran. That's a real problem, but that's a lot more likely to have the gap close quickly mm. because of the relationship that Mr. Trump and Mr. Modi have. Then you have um, America who renegotiated the whole thing with NAFTA, but no one even knows if that's ever gonna go anywhere because you have to have the Senate and Congress ratify this thing and who knows what's gonna happen. They're kind of busy right now, yeah. trying to throw the president out of power. You have Brexit, which is a, that, that is a whole other kettle of fish. You have Mexico and China getting into it. You have the Mercosur countries melting down for one form or another, whether it's Chile or, I mean, do you see what I'm saying? It's like yeah. the whole world's on fire. The whole world's on fire with regards to trade. And I have spent my entire career trying to explain to people what I do and them saying, well, I, okay. But now trade is such an important part of the political discourse that people tend to want to, you know, have a conversation about it. It's fascinating, mm -hmm. but it's all coming to a head at once. Yeah. And I don't think we were ready for it to all come to a head at once. Yeah, that's a great perspective. And I want to thank you for using the word hysterical whenever you're speaking about international trade. So we're, we're using very, <laughs> very good descriptors on this. I, go I, drink, I drink a lot, man. Yeah. I think a lot of things are funny that probably shouldn't be. And this, for the record, this is just soda water. So okay. I, yeah, I'm, 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 yeah, I believe it. Um, but yeah, you know, when you put it into context just there, it, it's not, you know, it's U.S. China and people kind of know NAFTA uh, or USMCA is changing. And the fact that I use both those terms, nobody really knows exactly what's the status, right? And then, and and the, and then Brexit and some of the other issues going on in the country uh, or the world. It, you're right. It is absolute chaos that, that I think that the, uh, the average consumer just may not be aware of or, to be honest, may not even care because it doesn't directly impact them it may indirectly but but maybe not directly so that's a great perspective from all the things happening out there um, so going back to the consumer I'm gonna shift gears a little bit and I said I'm a pretty simpleton I've been in the logistics racket for a while but I like to keep things super simple so if I'm Joe Blow and I'm either on a tractor in Kansas or I'm buying some so a new sweater or whatever how is any of this gonna impact me and, and, and what, what am I gonna see in my daily life with trade war negotiations on such a high level that I'm not really directly involved with any of the negotiation. I'm watching my leaders go back and forth. What, how is the average consumer going to be impacted? And maybe there's a couple of specific examples that you could give. Yeah. 
Uh, well, think of it this way. We were already heading towards inflation to begin with. And now many of the components that were being used for manufacture in America for a lot of things that Americans love, like cars, mm -hmm. are being cracked with 15, 25% tariffs. And that's gonna have a follow-on effect to the end cost. Now, Joe Consumer or, or Jane Consumer doesn't necessarily see that. But if the list four happens, which is still entirely possible, they will see that in every facet of what they buy. The, the hastening of, of, uh, of possible inflation, I think is something that people don't realize. There's this possibility economically. So we had the job reports the other day, right? We've never had stability with unemployment like we have right now. It's incredible. But what isn't rising are wages. So at some point, what you're going to have is unemployment's gonna to begin to dip and wages are gonna to begin to dip with it, but inflation is gonna continue. And it's gonna cause this morass where inflation is gonna continue and the follow-on effect of all of those extra tariffs is gonna come along with it. It's going to cause even faster and broader inflation. And I don't know if the Fed has all the tools left over to do anything about it. Right. That's a bigger question than for someone like me. Yeah. That is gonna be something Joe Consumer feels. And second of all, the um, where their products are coming from, a lot of people have made a conscious decision to move production from places like China to alternate areas of production. And there are places that people might be surprised by. Mexico has been a huge winner in this trade war. We have clients that have literally unbolted their machinery from the floor of their warehouses in China and moved it to Mexico and reestablished manufacturing there. They're going to Indonesia, they're going to Malaysia, Vietnam and Cambodia, where, oddly enough, many of those factories are actually owned by Chinese parent companies. So the Chinese are still making money off of that. Mm. But I believe you're gonna to continue to see that sort of a movement um, right. over time. You're gonna to continue to see, um, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was about to say, you know, the, the speed, one, one of the things that I was concerned about is, okay, there's tariffs going on in China and I'm just gonna move, right? I mean, here in the US, you can sell your house and move in, in a matter of, of days. My brother just did it uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, bolting a piece of equipment and dealing with setup and finding another manufacturer in Cambodia to make a widget within specs, within tariff, you know, the, yeah. the, the same. To me, that seems that that's months, if not a year to get it done right. But you just made a comment like you have customers that are just literally unbolting equipment. So maybe I'm, misun you know, maybe I'm misinformed that to me, making that switch isn't instantaneous, but in some in some instances it is. Maybe elaborate on that no, a little bit. It's not It's not instantaneous. It takes a tremendous amount of time. I work with an absolute rock star here named Will Niblo. Um, and he, he tells a lot of tales of people who thought it would be, mm -hmm. who thought that shifting their manufacturing was gonna be as simple as saying, I'm, I'm gonna buy my cheeseburger from Burger King instead of McDonald's. Yeah, great analogy. And they, they learned real quickly that the, um, whether it was since it was licensing in that country, um, finding logistics, finding support. You had all of the logistics infrastructure you could ever desire or wish for in China. Mm -hmm. You moved everything to Indonesia. Well, the same sailings aren't happening there. There's not as much tonnage, there's not as much air freight coverage. So you find yourself behind the eight ball trying to get stuff out of that country. He has done research and work, his team has for people where even with the tariffs, it's just made sense to stay in China. Mm -hmm. given what they would have to change and the movements that they would have to make. It, it didn't make as much sense for them to move when they did all the math. So, um, or the opportunity costs even. Yeah. And then people who have said, to your point you just made, 
in order for us to unbolt everything, in order for us to give severance payments to people in our manufacturing, in order for us to deal with the recoup losses of what we've just done, we're a year into this. We should just wait it out and see what happens. Um, we've made too much of an investment to just, you know, walk off now. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I, and I was thinking that uh, that's exactly right. Okay, I'm, I um, uh, make widgets overseas, and I'm like, geez, it's getting crazy, and the 18 months it's going to take me to replicate what I have now. There's an election coming up. Things may change. Yeah, I'll have oh, to yeah. pass some costs on to my customer, but I think they'll understand because there's so much noise around this topic. I'm just going to stay put and wait it out. Sounds like right. uh, after people have decided to go switch and buy a, a, a Whopper instead of a Big Mac, more companies are saying we're going we're gonna to wait it out. That's kind of what you're saying? There are people that have done that. They're going to wait it out. There are also people who are saying the, the cost of that, what we could lose if we if the quality you know are we going to be able to maintain quality over large quantities of production mm -hmm. if we take it someplace else i'm not willing to take that risk or am i willing to leave a manufacturer who's been wonderful and done everything i've asked for and then if something goes wrong i've got to come crawling back to these people mm -hmm. and are they going to be able to do it now at the same time i can give you examples of just as many of clients of ours who have said openly, they've admitted where they've said, we're leaving, the quality was great, we're making just as many at the same price, never coming back. Hmm. So there will be companies that don't return to China because of this. Now, what I can tell you is I do not have a single instance, I do not have one single instance, not one example of a company who came back to the US. That's interesting. I'm sure they're out there. Yeah. What, uh, just out of curiosity, so the, the you talked about the infrastructure, the quality of manufacturing. Um, what are a couple of uh, excuse me countries um, that th that companies are leaving for? Is it you, you mentioned Cambodia and, and Vietnam? Are, are those a couple? Oh, yeah, yeah give yeah, us an example of some countries that are row. are set up so the, enough the obvious, that they can absorb it. Yeah, you know, the obvious ones were Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Mexico, Colombia. Colombia did very well on this thing. Um, you know, to agree, Eastern Europe for a lot of automotive manufacturing in India, they both did extremely well. But here's some ones people, the Philippines. Now, for a long time in the 90s, when uh, when I had hair in a waist, the Philippines was a place where a lot of electronics were being made and a lot of manufacturing was being done. Tremendous amount of infrastructure is still there and a very learned, well-educated workforce is there as well. Um, uh, Bangladesh did quite well out of this as, as, as well, which was a bit shocking. Um, parts of the Middle East, Israel did quite well from parts of this. Uh, yeah. which is a bit shocking. Well, it truly is global uh, so. because you're what you're basically listing countries all over the world. Um, it's not just hey, we moved uh, you know a thousand miles south of China or, or, or inland or something. So it definitely yeah. the entire world is. Is it certain commodities? Uh, is it still textiles and soft goods, if that's the right term to use, that are going into the Southeast Asia and more hard goods and automotive going over to Europe? Is there specific commodities that fit plug in well? You know, it's funny. Um, for textiles, a lot of folks are moving to Vietnam and Cambodia because of uh, anticipation of a free trade agreement. And that's been that the case for quite some time because of the TPP. Mm -hmm. Where you're seeing a lot of... Uh, of you know, harmonized code driven change. You're seeing it for automotive manufacturing, heavy equipment engineering. That's being moved um, just because as economies tend to grow and mature, they go from that agrarian economy to simple manufacturing and then 
they start getting into more technical manufacturing and engineering towards high-tech aerospace, where China is now. Um, and in those countries that we listed off, that's where they are these days. Got it. Got it. That sounds great. So um, for our listeners, we're, we're again with Pete Mento with Crow LLP. We've been talking, gosh, a, a lot of things related to trade and, and, and logistics. And uh, we're going to be right back, and we're going to jump in a little bit more about the uptime uh, of logistics. And let's talk about moving widgets and things across the, uh, the world and some of the infrastructure and challenges that are happening related to the physical movement of products. So, Pete, thanks for staying with us. All right, so we're back with Uptime Logistics and our guest Pete Mento with Crow LLP. We've had some great dialogue about, um, you know, the tariff changes and the global impact and, and things that uh, the average consumer may not really um, understand or have relevance to what, what's going on. So we're going to shift a little bit and talk about logistics and the physical movement of products and, and how things move from point A to point B, even though we're now sourcing in different parts of the country or different parts of the world. So as I mentioned, I'm a pretty simpleton, so I like to kind of keep things in buckets and, and keep it simple. So what I'd like to do uh, is really take the evolution or the cycle of an actual shipment and talk about the different people that touch that from origin mm -hmm. to the steamship lines to the final delivery and talk about how the trade war, not only with China, but in general, is making any impact, yes, no, maybe, w with those entities. So for example, in China, there's manufacturing, some are owned by the Chinese government, um, some may or may not, probably not. You got the steamship lines, you got the infrastructure over there that's helping to move a good from a factory onto a port. Is anything changing with that group? Are, are people raising the rates? Have they pulled out uh, capacity? Uh, is any of that being impacted by the trade uh, challenges that we just spoke about? Yes, sir. And that is a broad and scary topic. Mm -hmm. So consider this. Many people, uh, many macroeconomists have said that there's a, there's a great fear of a Chinese debt crisis. Okay. So imagine this, you're, you're operating a business and all of a sudden your orders are gonna go away. Or you're operating a business and your customer in the US is pushing back a, a 15 to 25% tariff on you and saying, you've gotta eat this. Mm -hmm. Either way, your profit margins have gone way down. And now your debt that you owe to people is harder and harder for you to pay. And it helps to hasten a possible default issue. So there, there's a, a real underlying economic issue that could end up blowing up in the face of China as a whole, which has political implications. Mm -hmm. Let's put that to the side. Consider, if you will, the logistics infrastructure, okay? If the rest of the world is buying less things from China and the rest of the world is buying less things, period, which appears to be the case right now, that means there's less call for bunker T fuel, which is the diesel fuel that we use in, in the period. Mm -hmm. Oil costs are down through the floor right now as well. And the pricing for transportation is down, which means you've got to, as you said, take tonnage off of the water in order to maintain your prices and maintain your profitability. Um, I believe that this is going to have in, in 2020 and 2021, it's going to have a crunch on the logistics company, on the carriers themselves. Mm. And then you're going to have a recession that's going to happen. They're, they're going to get a double whammy on this. So just as we begin to get comfortable again with a more normalized global economy, you're going to have a fall-on recession. It's going to hit the rest of the world harder than the U.S. Hmm. So yeah. while that's happening, it's going to have another, again, fall-on effect on the ocean carriers and the air carriers. 
Gotcha. Um, you know, as long as they keep rolling out new iPhones every couple of months. Yeah, I don't think there's enough bang in a new iPhone to get uh, the, the type of uh, purchase power that uh, that Apple would need. So it sounds like if if, if you and I own a, a Dre company and we got trucks and we're moving product from a factory to the to the port, as you yeah. indicated, uh, I'm nervous. We just bought a whole new fleet of trucks because we got more stuff coming. I'm a little bit nervous at how I'm going to pay for them. So I'm scaling back. Therefore, capacity could potentially be lower. It's more challenging to get the product to the port. Um, let's talk about the steamship lines. You know, these are billion-dollar multinational corporations. What do they care about this, and what are their implications? Uh, I got a boat on a water, and I got thousands of them. How is this impacting me? Well, they're, 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 people tend to forget that they're, they're absolutely a monopoly, mm -hmm. and they can do whatever they want outside of all of the antitrust laws that we have. So they'll just they'll take tonnage off the water and deal with it. They've been dealing with years and years of, of financial woes. This is not something that they want to have to deal with. And they've been reinvesting in their tonnage. So here they are rolling out new vessels and trying to become more and more efficient. But unfortunately, it would appear at least that they're going to the headwinds of financial difficult times, both what's going on now with this trade war and with a, with a recession that everyone sees coming. So they're, they're going to eat it pretty hard with regards to this. Sooner or later, it's just a question of time. Now, let's say that everyone in China is doing what the Chinese government says is what they're doing, and we're selling it to everywhere but America, so don't worry about it. I have a hard time believing that the other consumer markets in the world pick up the difference of this juggernaut of consumption, which is the U.S., constantly, you know, consume whatever we get our hands on, right. um, making up for it that way. It's just simply not going to happen. And these steamship lines cannot um, redeploy their services fast enough to get to where they need to be in order to take advantage of those markets. I, just, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. Do you think there'll be any consolidation in the industry? Like, yeah. like you said that- uh, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. It's going to keep going. Yeah. It's, it's, it just makes financial sense for them to continue to consolidate. There's nothing stopping them. There's no regulatory body that's going to be able to stop them. Right. So yes, I absolutely think there will be. So if that's, there's no regulatory body and okay, so we now need to charge just like they've done for, for decades with peak season surcharges and stuff. So, so the steamship line says, ah, we're just going to raise as a monopoly, everybody raise your container rates by $500 and that solves all the, all the problems. Do you see that type of thing yeah. happening? I do. Here, here's the dirty truth. Okay. We as consumers of logistics did this to ourselves. Mm -hmm. We constantly drove value out of logistics and pushed people down to price. And when we did that, when we said the only thing we care about is turning this into a commodity, we allowed an OSHA container to be nothing more than a reusable commodity, nothing more different than pork bellies and orange juice. And when we did that, we took value out of it. It allowed these guys to consolidate. A box is a box, a ship is a ship, a route is a route. And then when technology came on top of that, it gave transparency to the rates. And when you put those two things together, you force these guys to conglomerate themselves in order to make what little money they can off of volume. When you have fewer and fewer choices, your price goes higher and higher. It's simply supply and demand. And anybody watching this or listening to it, learn that in their freshman economics class. You did this to yourself. Right. You are, without realizing it, rationalizing the number of providers and the number of NVOCCs by taking value out of the choice. 
That's a good point. Um, well, it's depressing. Oof. Yeah, <laughs> kind of bummed me out there. I wasn't sure what my next question was going to be. I'm like, oh, that's a sobering thought. Um, Sorry about that. Yeah, that's okay. So let's talk about um, the three prong of this. We talked about uh, you and I own a trucking company over in China, and we have our concerns with the debt we have to manage, and we're not sure if we're going to continue to to fill those trucks. We just talked about the steamship lines and some of the challenge that they're going through. Let's talk about the guys that we see on a daily basis over here in the U.S. I'm talking about drayage companies, the ports, things of that nature. Um, some of the topics may that you just mentioned may still overlay and have those same type of concerns, but talk about that group of those three segments, what's happening with that group here in the U.S. and how they're changing their, their approach and, and some of their concerns with that final mile. On the final, final mile thing, uh, you know, the, the trucking companies have had a, have had just a stranglehold on pricing and a lot of that has to do with just a lack and availability of qualified drivers. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. You know, the, I think what we all need to understand as consumers of transportation is that the drivers are deciding whether or not our customers are going to get their goods. Mm -hmm. The drivers are deciding what the prices are. And I think we're fools if we don't come to grips with that. So there's that. Um, and I think this trade war has very little to do with their situation in that other than the fact that it might get a little cheaper for them because the price of gas should go down as we have, you know, um, downward pressure on, on transportation. Yep. Um, orders, on the other hand, I think that they've been extremely savvy. So when I, you know, I've worked for a whole lot of forwarders, and boy, that's a scary thing to say, right? You know, um, in my career, I've, I've been a mercenary. I've gone wherever the cash is because I've got alimony to pay for. <laughs> um, and, uh, one thing I'll tell you is working around the senior leadership of, of these major monolithic big names in the industry, these guys see it when it's coming. The, you know, the, the big forwarders, particularly the big American forwarders, they know when winter is coming and they make smart decisions about how they deploy their limited resources, um, how, they, how they actually you know, contract their spending and they, they make good decisions about what they do with their money. So I think that they're gonna be just fine. And one way or the other, because they're middlemen, they're gonna make their money. Right. I, I'm more concerned with the ocean carriers and the air carriers and their ability to maintain themselves in this environment where they're being just beaten down to the point where you know their margins are razor thin. Truckers, as long as no one wants to drive them, they're making their own prices. Yeah. Yeah, that's we've had several uh, discussions on uptime about the driver shortages yeah. and, and just the, the flat-out realities. And everybody asks why, and then the, the next question is, would you be interested in driving a truck as a career? And, and more and more, the answer is no thank you. So That's uh, a hard life. Yeah. One more thing I'd like to add is yeah. warehousing, right? So as economies tend to um, go down, you know, my last place that I worked um, at Crane Worldwide, over the course of the past couple of years, Mr. Crane's made some significant investments in, in building new warehouses. And people were thinking, you know, why would you do that? Well, he's building them in very strategic places where um, there wasn't a lot of warehouse coverage. And you're going to see that with a lot of logistics firms. They're building warehouse spaces in places where there isn't a lot of warehousing right now. Well, well why? Because when downturns in the economy happen and there is an overage or surplus of inventory, it's got to go somewhere. And people wait out the economic storm, and warehouse space ends up coming at a real premium. 
So you're going to find that warehouse space is going to get expensive in a down economy, which seems counterintuitive, but it is how it works. Yeah. Well, being here in, in Colorado, um, counterintuitive <laughs> and unintended consequences when the legalization of cannabis yeah. came around, uh, commercial real estate just went gangbusters. And, and uh, you know, my my day job is in warehousing and people are like, why is it so expensive in Denver? And then I said, do you know what weed is legal here? And then that just, they're like, oh yeah, okay, I get it now. So I think once you once you uh, draw the line there that you just did, you can definitely see it's it's relevant. So th that's a good- Well, isn't um, everybody high so they don't care about prices? Isn't I'm high right word? now, Pete. So we just got to keep that, keep that down. <laughs> So, no, but it's it's crazy in Colorado, and, and I know you do quite a bit of traveling and, and have been out here, and, and I'll tell you what, I can't even imagine whenever the gas turns on in California, that's already an expensive market that uh, when people start growing marijuana out there uh, on big time scale, it's going to, that place is going to be crazy if you ask me. Yeah. What, what are some other things that uh, importers and, and companies are doing to mitigate? We, we talked about how warehousing is changing. What about yeah. people hear, hear the term tariff engineering and then also yeah. a subset of warehousing is, is um, foreign trade zones and things of that nature. Are those coming around as, as uh, people are interested in those now? And so maybe talk about what tariff engineering is, are people using it, and then are people using free trade zones and maybe talk about that. Yeah, so, you know, um, I would love to sit here and tell you that what I do is it takes a really sharp wit and it just takes, it doesn't. For, for the things that I do, it just takes exposure. And over time, you see enough stuff and you remember it. And, you know, the tariff is big. There's thousands and thousands of things in the tariff. But if you get exposed to enough stuff over enough amount of time, you, you, you eventually hear just about everything under the sun you could apply to get someone out of trouble. So you can, you can change what something is called, which is the tariff stuff you talked about. Mm -hmm. You can change how we apply value which is manipulating what something is worth when it comes across a border, or you change the rules that apply to it, which is legislative relief, free trade agreements, and that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, foreign trade zones are an interesting one. Now, zones don't really help you here because the, um, the 301 tariffs, the way they were written, if you put something into a zone, no matter when you take it out, 20 years from now, you're still gonna have to pay those 301 tariffs, which was some dirty pool, in my opinion, Whoever wrote this thing uh, must have had it out for importers. Either that or they were one heck of a good writer because, man, when I saw that, I, I stood up and I did like a slow golf clap. I was like, well done, well played. <laughs> I mean, that was uh, – but, you know, starting on the classification side of it, what is a thing? If you're able to make a, a minor change in a product, it could change the way it's classified. And it may take it out of one of those lists that would otherwise require it to be, you know – uh, subject to a tariff. Um, it may be that you've had it classified wrong the whole time. And that's that could be great news, right? Like, oh, that's wonderful. You know, I've, I've had it classified as, as X and, and it turns out that it was Y. Okay, well, it was, you're paying 3% on it forever and it wasn't, uh, wasn't um, subject to these 301s, wonderful. Well, now you find out that it's classified as Y and it's, it isn't subject to the 301s, but it's not 3%, it's 8% at Valorum. All right, well, cool. Well, you got to go back for the last five years and pay what you owe the government. Wow. And then going forward, when these 301s go away, you got to pay it too. So, you know, um, the broker giveth and the broker taketh away. It, it's not always good news, man. You know, I mean, uh, it's it can be frustrating finding out that there's a there's a positive piece of this. And, and tariffs, 
90% of classification, honestly, is taking the time to be able to make a good argument over why you think something is what it is and being able to reasonably explain it to someone at CBP so that they agree with you. It's half science, baby, you know? Um, so that's, you know, tariff engineering in a nutshell. And then on the valuation side, you've got the first sale process where if it turns out that you bought something and it was actually manufactured by someone before you bought it from them, which happens a lot in retail, you can use that first sale invoice, you know? Um, there are people who are recovering duties through drawback. If you import this stuff and you pay a 3-1 tariff on it and you eventually re-export it, you can go back and we can get those tariffs um, through the, the duty drawback process. Um, now we have the MTB, the miscellaneous tariff bill. It closes in early December, but if you pay less than a half a million dollars of ad valorem tariffs, regular tariffs, on a product and you have no domestic competition on those products, you can ask Congress to give you a duty-free exemption for three years. Mm. No one does it. Barely anybody does it. I mean, we do it because I'm pretty sinister that way. I'm going to find you. I hate paying the man. I'm going to find you your money. But yeah. most importantly, you know, they don't bother. Yeah. So um, that's on the U.S. side. Now, remember, in China, if you're exporting to China, they have punitive tariffs too. So there's a there's an exclusion process in China to get out of paying the tariffs. Barely anybody is bothering to do it. And then I question how, how controversial it must be because – United States, for all of our faults, we don't have the level of corruption that you have in China with regards to customs. So we have worked with people in regards to getting, you know, working towards exemptions. I've not seen any issues of corruption, but I have heard that it does exist with regards to the process. So I have, you know, got my fears right. as far as that goes. Am I talking too much again? No, you're no, not, to no, you're doing great. It's interesting stuff. So, um, uh, let's talk about incoterms, and there's all different ways you can take ownership and possession and control sure. as you import. Um, uh, looking at the incoterms, I know they just changed literally just a few months ago. I know they review them every, every 10 years or so. Does changing incoterms, so I'm an importer of a widget, and I'm like, hey, I used to do DDP, now I want to go XWorks. Is there any value or benefit to look at your incoterms as an importer uh, during this trade uh, war? Yep. Yeah. Um, so you're a you're a um, you're a gentleman who has advanced past the years of teenage years. You know you're a you remember the good old days <laughs> yeah. uh, when we were we were younger men. And do you remember all those stupid games that we played in, in elementary school like hot potato? Yes. All right. So there was this there was this game that that uh, that you played where when when the music stopped, whoever had the hot potato lost. Right. Yep. And uh, there was another one called concentration where you had to put these little spaces in the right spots before the timer went up where everything blew up in your face. Incoterms can be a lot like hot potato or, or concentration. You know? at, the end, at the end, who's ever got a hold of this thing is stuck with it. You're stuck with the responsibility for insurance, responsibility for care of the goods, responsibility for the duties and transportation costs. So if you can convince some other poor schlep to take responsibility for it, good on you. But... The reality is in 2019 and 2020, this is kind of a big topic. So convincing someone else to take responsibility for the tariff is actually hard to do. Now, any companies have pulled it off. They have told their foreign vendors, you're gonna deliver this stuff DDP, and you're gonna swallow this tariff and find a way to make it work. That ain't my problem. Hmm. God bless them. Um, but a lot of folks have, they've been unable to make that change. But if you can do it, um, you know, power to the people, man. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, a couple more qu questions, then we'll then we'll kind of wrap it up. I got um, 
three final questions, but uh, one more comment. Technology in a lot of the uptime shows, ha we've talked about how it's impacted uh, hours of service in the trucking industry and, and visibility and transparency just in the tracking and tracing on the domestic side. Is there any you know, technologies, people, the human nature, where there's a will, there's a way. And if there's a problem that's trying to be overcome, somebody will try to make a buck off of it or come up with some new cool technology that will fix a problem. Um, I don't know if you've seen um, any companies taking, and I won't say advantage because that's somewhat of a negative term, and I'm not trying for it to be negative, but is there anything out there that's popped up in the last 18 months that's technology-related um, that is helping uh, this whole process that we've been talking about? Uh, you know what's crazy is, is it's not that it's popped up in the last 18 months. It's that the the uh, the utility of the product has really taken a whole new direction. So all of these companies that made investments in global trade management software to understand landed cost, they've really brought on a whole new fantastic part for making that investment. Mm -hmm. So they can suddenly now figure out, okay, well, I don't want to make it in China anymore. Where's the next best place to do this from? And this global trade management software can help them to make that intelligent decision. And there's a lot of providers out there that make that software and, uh, and a lot of friends that, that sell a lot of different types of it. So I don't really want to plug one over the other, but making that investment for that ERP system has really paid off for a lot of folks. Got it. And yeah. a lot of people who wish that they would have by now. Yeah. Yeah, so no magic wand or here's a new thing that's going to revolutionize or fix a problem. It's just uh, utilizing technology and, and services that may already yeah. exist to, to help you make the right, the right decision. So um, last question, and then we'll have a little fun here at the end. What type of resources? So I'm listening to this podcast, and I'm really getting uh, you know a lot of knowledge, and I'm like, wow, I need to really analyze my supply chain and think about doing things differently. Yep. What are some resources specifically, like maybe some websites people could go to? or different, uh, you know, something very tangible that I can walk away with and say, I need to reach out to this person or this website so I can understand um, my options as an importer. Totally, so um, you should absolutely be hitting up the USTR website. There's a lot of great information that's available there. And it is probably one of the best places to go for up to the minute information. They do a very good job of keeping it up to date. Mm -hmm. uh, also to find out if you have an exemption that you may be able to use for your product. A lot of folks don't realize that there are exemptions out there that may qualify on their product. So that's a good place to start. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the World Trade Centers and they have a lot of wonderful people there that are able to help you. So um, going out to the World Trade Centers um, and their local websites, a fantastic place to go. ICPA, International Compliance Professionals Association, their website is just a wonderful place to get information. Certainly, um, you know, LinkedIn and, and the information that, that I put out there, not to plug myself too hard, but, uh, and then Trade School. You know, we, we do um, whatever we can to, to put up as much information as we can on a biweekly basis. We have a, um, we have a uh, live, uh, we did one today as a matter of fact. Uh, we have a, a live every other week training. We ask questions, we take questions, and it's, uh, it's really a non-political, non-biased, non-partisan discussion of issues of interaction. Gotcha. But I think really um, the best thing that someone can do to get themselves really in the right position with regards to trade is to seek out as much information as they can and to do their best to not be chicken little, but to let people know that there are things that could affect them down the road. Yeah. You know, it's a definitely an ounce of prevention kind of business. Yeah, for sure. And the World Trade Center here in Denver, WC, WTC Denver, 
www.ghostsandmysteries.org uh, is a phenomenal uh, group. So if you're listening here locally, please reach out to the group here in Colorado. They're, they're, uh, they're a phenomenal group to work with. All right, so I got two questions for you, and then I'll let you enjoy your Friday afternoon in, in Manhattan. So here's the first one. You need to fill in the blank on this question. Global trade is heading for dot, 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 and your answer? Global trade is heading for uh, even more chaos. I think that as crazy as things are now, it's really only been crazy with a limited number of jurisdictions. And although the US and China and Europe are big ones, I think you're gonna see even more of this madness in a whole lot of other countries coming up. Hmm. So where you crash on the kids, it's just gonna get nuttier. <laughs> Gotcha. And the last one would be, uh, if I were a company that was importing product from China, I would? Pull my eye track data um, or get on the ACE program as quickly as I could. Um, eye track is the um, importer trade activity reports. You can get them for about 250 bucks for customs mm -hmm. directly. Um, you send them a FOIA request on your letterhead, and in about three weeks, they will send you every single import that you've done in the past five years or you can get on the ACE protocol and run the same reports for free from the government. These are both government resources. Your tax dollars have paid for them. You should get your money's worth. And they will tell you everything about you as an importer. Um, you're not gonna be able to really strike and figure out what to do from a strategy standpoint until you know specifically from a statistical standpoint what it is you're working with. Got it. Um, and then once you've done that, have a good sit down with a good broker and put together a strategy on how to tackle this thing. You should on an annual basis, look at your duty burden, regardless of the trade war, and make a decision about how you plan on tackling it. And if you're a multi-jurisdictional organization, which means you're importing around the world, every couple of years, you should do a global analysis on duty and VAT and try to figure out how to save yourself money. You know, you shouldn't sit back and feel victimized on duties. You should try to find a way to get on top of those. All right. Need help? You know who to call. Nice. I like it. That's a perfect note to end on. Pete, I can't thank you enough. You and I have known each other for a couple of years, and every time I hear you speak, it's just you simplify things. I'm a simple guy. I just need to dumb it down, and, and, and you do a good job of that. So thanks for dumbing it down for us. It was my pleasure, and I'll come back anytime, anytime at all. Excellent. All right. Thanks again, Pete. Have a good one. You too. All right. And thank you for joining us today on Uptime Logistics, powered by Cap Logistics. You can find more information about the show in the description below. And don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel. And please visit caplogistics.com for customized transportation solutions. Everybody have a great day.